We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning, Emmaus. It's good to be with you all. I, uh, I've been gone for a few weeks on account of uh, work trips and vacation and the Blues wanting to send the cup. So I uh, went to the Victory Parade as a St. Louis hometown boy, so... Thanks for letting me be gone for that. But seriously, uh, we appreciate the time away, time to rest. Chris and I got to vacation and see a lot of uh, the Mediterranean Sea and a lot of Europe. And let, let me just tell you, uh, we saw some of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And every Sunday when I know you guys were gathering, it was like aching my heart to not be here. And even though we saw some of the prettiest places in the world, uh, this is still the sweetest place on earth to us. Uh, these Sunday mornings with you all at this time. Hey, if you're, if you're new with us, just let me just say welcome to Emmaus. Uh, be sure to stop by the Connect table on the way out, fill out some information, get a coffee cup from us, it's our gift to you, and just help us know how we can serve you better. We say it every week here, but our goal with our service is to help you love Jesus more than you do right now. That, that's what we want. We don't want you to be impressed with us or impressed with our preaching or anything like that. We want you to be impressed with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think that our, our, our preacher today will help you in that endeavor, being impressed with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have uh, today Nat Clements, my dear brother. Uh, we are finishing our residence. So yeah, come on up here, Nat. We're finishing our residence series today. And uh, after this, just so you guys have a heads up of where we're going, we're gonna do seven or so weeks in uh, Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, so a series called Poems and Proverbs. And then we're gonna jump into 2 Corinthians and just walk verse by verse through 2 Corinthians. Uh, we'll be there for quite a while. So if you wanna start reading ahead, uh, start jumping in 2 Corinthians now. That, that would serve you well. Nat, we're proud of you, brother. You're super faithful in the residency and you're super faithful to a lot of these brothers and sisters, man. Uh, people in this room love Jesus more, cherish his gospel more because you're here. Man, we love you. We thank you uh, for your faithfulness. Um, and we're excited to hear what you have to say to us today from God's word. Let me pray for you. Jump in. God, I love this man. He's a dear brother. Uh, He loves you and his love for you makes me love you. God, would you be with him as he takes to the pulpit this week? Lord, if he has any nerves or nervousness, God, would you just, would you crush that? Let him know that he's preaching as a dying man to dying men. And so what we need is your gospel. Let him not preach for the applause of man or under the fear of man, but let him preach for your glory and the good of your people. God, would you stir our affections as listeners? Would you stir our affections for you? Would you stir our affection for your son? And would you stir our affection for your gospel and your people? God, we love you. We need you this morning. Would you sanctify us and may you delight in what we do this morning? It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. We thank you once again for our brother Nat. Amen. Good morning. See, am I I on here? Good deal. Uh, I'm excited to have the opportunity through the residency series to open the word with you today. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, which would be weird because I try to meet as many people as I can. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Nat. Uh, my wife, Tori, and I have been members here for the last couple of years. Uh, we have two daughters that are scrambling around upstairs somewhere. Um, but it, it is so great to be able to open the word with you today. Uh, alongside of you, Tori and I have seen uh, a season of growth that doesn't compare to any other time in our Christian walk. And that's a testimony to both your loving kindness to us and the Spirit's presence among you. So we, we want to let you know we love you, and we're, we're so thankful for our time uh, that we've had here with you. We're not leaving. This sounds like we're leaving. We're not leaving yet. 
That's next year, maybe. But um, <laughs> in this time, um, I've had the opportunity to confess sin that's long held me down in despair, and I've been able to hear you confess sin that's held you down, and we've both been able to carry those to the cross where they belong. And uh, I've grown to love you individually, and then as a church, uh, corporately, I love you guys, and I'm thankful for this opportunity. And uh, like um, our pastors often say, I'm, I'm hopeful that this text here today leaves you loving Jesus more at the end of this uh, sermon than you did when you walked in today. So I'll go ahead and let's open up the word to Hosea chapter 2. I specifically chose this because it has been so encouraging to me over the past eight months or nine months since I came across this in a daily Bible reading. Um, Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Now, we're going to have to do some context work. um, I don't want to just parachute in the middle of a book. But uh, let's go ahead and read the text, and then I'll pray, and we'll set that context. Starting in verse 16, Hosea chapter 2. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall not be remembered. Uh, they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I... I thank you so much uh, for this passage. I thank you for the, the encouragement and the, the delight that I find in here and the rest from my soul. In times when, when I feel that I'm so far outside of your redemptive reach, this text and texts like it encourage me. Uh, Father, it makes all the difference. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Father, for speaking. Thank you for not remaining in silence. I pray that our time together today could be spent resting on the work that you've accomplished for us. Father, I pray that we would love you more at the end of this sermon. Son, I pray that you would be glorified with the words that I say. Be big this morning, Jesus. And Spirit, preach a better sermon than I've prepared. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've titled this sermon, Healed of Our Unfaithfulness healed of our unfaithfulness, and that's actually drawn from a recapitulation of our passage here in chapter 2 at the end of this book of Hosea. In chapter 14, I read, uh, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. This, this idea of heightened restoration is, is sprinkled throughout Hosea and, and the Minor Prophets. And this is what we're going to be focusing on today. And it's beautiful. It is, it is something that warms my heart. But for us to be able to find the beauty as it is here in this passage, we need to set the backdrop. The backdrop is one of judgment. So I want to be able to see this clear. So let's set that backdrop. Hosea did not have an easy mission. 
He was called by God to the northern kingdom of Israel. This was about 200 years after they had a little civil war and two, two tribes split off on the bottom of Israel and the rest remained uh, outside as the northern kingdom of Israel. And they were uh, evil from the very beginning. From their inception, they had immediately devolved into syncretistic, idolatrous worship. Idols were pa- placed in the high places along uh, dedicated, with places dedicated to the one true God. So they're mixing in all this idolatrous worship, the holy days, the Sabbaths, and the festivals that were given to them by God to remember his faithfulness to them. They had turned it around and showed how unfaithful they could be to him. And they used it uh, to fly up in his face all of their unfaithful doings. Fast forward 200 years, and God is sending this prophet, Hosea, not only to tell the people of Israel uh, how they're going to be judged, but to show them the why, to show them the why. So in a very real sense, our hopeful passage is found smack dab in the middle of an assurance of judgment. In in the first chapter, God tells Hosea to take a prostitute as a wife. Her name was Gomer. He said uh, in verse 1, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He was to get married to an unfaithful wife and to have children with this unfaithful wife. They had three children, and God told them what he was supposed to name them. The first one was a son. They named him Jezreel, and that was so they could remember all their violent acts. Jezreel would be, if we had a recurrence of Gettysburg over and over and over again, you'd understand, oh, yeah, very violent place. Jezreel was that. They, they knew that they'd done wrong in, in Jezreel. And the second child that they had was a daughter, and he, it was literally named No Mercy, so that people would know that God will not have mercy upon them, but will have them carried away in judgment. And the last child was, was a son named Not My People, for as Hosea recalls God's words, you are not my people and I am not your God. This is a re- reversal of the Deuteronomic uh, formula, which is I will be, uh, you will be my people and I will be your God. This is exactly opposite. You are not my people, and I'm not your God. This, should, this would be heartbreaking to any Israelite walking around at that time. Uh, names don't mean a lot these days. We can, we can name our children off of our favorite cereal brands, and people dig it. But then, the names meant something. You had, if you named your child uh, No Mercy, people are going to ask you why. Because it, ind- it indicated something about them. It wasn't just... Uh, just a name that you liked or sounded cool. I wonder uh, if they had nicknames or they had to go by their actual full names. So when Hosea sent them off to the bus for school, he'd say, you know, have a great day, Jezreel, and break, break a leg, no mercy, and remember daddy loves you, not my people. <laughs> this, this would have drawn exactly the kind of attention that God wanted the people to see. He wanted them to see, like, what, why did you name your children that? Why are they named all these terrible things? And so that they could remember terrible things are coming. He wanted them to know that. He said it's purposefully awkward. It draws exactly the kind of attention that God wanted his people to understand. There's coming a day because of your unfaithfulness that I will break you. The story hurts even more as you read because it's not enough that Hosea had to marry a wife out of prostitution. But eventually and compulsively, she would return to prostitution. In fact, uh, according to Ray Ortland, the, the, the language in this passage suggests that only Jezreel is Hosea's, and the other two were uh, 
were born out of all the, all the men that she had, might have met up with, her countless other lovers. At the beginning of the chapter, uh, of chapter 2, we see God telling to the metaphorical children of Israel to speak to their unfaithful mother. He's saying, maybe they won't listen to me, but maybe they'll listen to you. He's talking to the children of the children of Israel and saying, make sure you're telling your parents to follow after me. Maybe they won't listen to me, but they'll listen to you. And when that didn't happen, uh, he says, in, in, when they didn't even listen to their children, he says, therefore, in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, he says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it is better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. According to Ortland, again, the people failed to make a meaningful connection between their theology, history, and worship on one hand and their real-life problems on the other. This was an agrarian culture. They depended very much on, on their crops. And guess what? Baal promised them that. This, this, this false Canaanite god of the Phoenicians promised that if, if they would worship him, he'd bring the rain, which is ironic if you know some of the Old Testament stories where he couldn't deliver. But they trusted in him, and they could actually set up a pillar to him on the ends of their crops, and they could see him. Don't you ever just want to see something that is sure? Know that it's coming? They couldn't trust in the God they could not see, and they couldn't remember him or what he had done. Because remember, they'd misused all of his festivals, his Sabbaths, all the things that were there for them to remember, they'd forgotten. They had no lack of political upheaval where dynastic changeovers were violent, bloody, old hat. If you wanted to be king over Israel, you just killed the last one and took over. In fear, they turned to gods who promised them satisfaction. In fear, they turned to Egypt, the ones who once held them slaves. They turned to them because they were afraid of the Assyrians to the north who were constantly watching them and plotting how they were going to overtake them. They could feel their eyes on them. So they turned to the Egyptians and embraced their gods. This is what they did. They employed utilitarian logic and bid on the fastest-looking horse. They wanted to make sure that their children's future was a bright one. We do this, don't we? We often justify the means with the ends when we make decisions. Perhaps in the past you have sought or secured an abortion. Now, this, is, this is a terribly grave sin, but please know there's room at the cross for you. Many others in this room would never think of having abortions. And, and the grand majority of us probably haven't offered burnt sacrifices to pagan gods. But we still justify our sins in stressful seasons. We do allow some of our smaller sins to remain in our households because we are really busy in life right now and it's just not a good time. Or perhaps we deceive ourselves by saying that we have the issues that nobody else in this room would understand, and it's probably best just to keep it secret. They love me, and I want to keep them at arm's length so that they continue to love me. We chose the lesser of two evils in political campaigns justified by fear of a scarier candidate. This is us. We do this. 
This kind of lawless behavior, the justifying the means with the ends, is what led Israel down this funnel into the worst kind of depravity. It was so extreme that God was no longer willing to call Israel his wife. They are no longer his people. And he would lead them to correction, a judgment of exile and separation that would effectively last until the coming of Christ. We just walked through the book of Nehemiah, and there were some really hopeful up and downs in that book. But at the end of the book, ultimately, we're still waiting on the Savior. Because ultimately, they never, they never made it back from this exile. It is here that we find our text. So now we've done our context work. We've set the dark backdrop. Here we are. We're back at chapter 2, verse 16. Um, we, we hear of a time when God is going to allure his people. In a metaphorical sense, he's going to lead her back out of Egypt. Let's read verse 16 and 17 again. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by, names, by name no more. I'm, I'm not kidding when I tell you that I've, I've read this over and over and over again. It's the one section of my Bible right now that's just completely orange because I've highlighted it. And it's, yeah, it's torn out. I, I've gained so much encouragement from this passage. And I've wept over this passage. I mean, I have hope for this passage. And looking forward to the day when this passage is realized and fulfilled. And, and for you as well. Not just for me, but for all of us. I mean, the middle of the assurance of judgment, God takes a break to tell of a brighter future that he himself will bring about. He will redeem them. This text is obviously pointing to the, the gospel. Christ, what he has accomplished for his people in his life lived perfectly in the stead of people who could not live perfectly. And his death died in sacrifice for sinners like you and like me. And his life returned to him, resurrected from the grave, both in assurance that the Father had accepted his sacrifice and also in a promise that one day we will be resurrected as he is if we trust in him. This is the gospel, and this is what Hosea 2 is all about. This is what it's pointing to. Now, I recognize that I may be in the minority in this, but I, I grew up listening to classic country music. I, I, I love country music uh, from the last century, not so much this, last, this other, the most recent stuff, but I, lo I love the older country music because it's honest. It may be obtuse and unrefined and sometimes silly, but it's honest. Uh, you can take it as face value. You don't need any deciphering of the lyrics most times. But my, my favorite artist is uh, Keith Whitley, um, who sadly, he drank himself to death a couple years before I was born. So he's a terrible role model, but he was a great, he, he was a, he was a great uh, songwriter. He wrote a song called Don't Close Your Eyes. And uh, I think this goes, and it, it's, it's heavy. The lyrics are heavy. I'm, I'm giving you a forewarning, because I think it goes really well with this, this text that we're looking at today. The lyrics, I'm going to read verse 1 in the chorus. He says, I, I know you loved him a long time ago. Even now in my arms, you still want him, I know. But darling, this time, let your memories die. When you hold me tonight, don't close your eyes. And the chorus reads, don't close your eyes. Let it be me. Don't pretend it's him in some fantasy. Darling, just once, let yesterday go. 
and you'll find more love than you'll ever know. Just hold me tight when you love me tonight and don't close your eyes. What God is looking forward to in this passage is similar to Keith's song in that he's looking forward to a day where we will not remember our gods anymore and we will be uh, with him without uh, stain of our previous false gods. When we will worship him in spirit and in truth, this text both recognizes the current reality of Christians, that we are filled with the Spirit and ushered into a heretofore unknown intimacy with the Trinitarian God of the Bible, but it also looks forward to a day when that will be fulfilled in total, all of it. We know we will know the one true God, and he will know us without any stain or blemish and no competing values. However, this verse also, based on the, the next few verses, looks forward to a day that this intimacy will be perfected and solidified with no mixtures and no impurities. If you look with me at verse 18 and following, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Often the Old Testament prophecy will have a collusion of what uh, theologians will call the already and the not yet, which means some of this is now and some of it's later, which, you know, it's, it's, it's technical jargon, I know, but it, it's pretty hard and pretty easy to grab onto. For Hosea, all of it was the not yet. But now, since Christ has come, some of it is already, some of it's realized, some of it's inaugurated in his first coming and only waited to be consummated in his second coming. Part of this, we, are, we can already know that we know God, and he knows us. This is the same kind of language we find in Jeremiah 21, that he'll make a covenant with us, uh, 31, Jeremiah 31. But some of it's still waiting on. This idea of death being banished, we look forward to. In 1 Corinthians 15, we know that that will happen when Christ returns, and that, that death will be the last enemy that Christ destroys. This text is both currently realized by believers and also eagerly anticipated. He does not only effectively remove all the false gods, he also removes any felt need that the people felt for them. War is gone, pain is no more, and the earth produces vegetation without the chains of the curse. It's back to better than the beginning. This is better than Eden. In verse 19, we see that God was planning to betroth the people for himself in righteousness and steadfast love and mercy. These are all gifts procured for us in Christ's work and sealed by the Spirit when we repent and believe in him. We are betrothed to Christ. Verse 20 says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. What an unprecedented gift, and what an amazing mystery. After this, it is important for us to see the children's names are back in the text. Littered back in here, it says that, Jezreel will be blessed, and she'll be so, he'll be sown back into the land. No mercy will obtain mercy, and not my people will be called, you are my people. This exact passage is referenced by Paul in Romans chapter 9. 
when he is explaining why the Gentiles, the non-Jews, people like us, have been included in God's plan for his new people. What if God, desiring, this is, this is uh, Romans 9, verse 22, starting in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not just from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. You see, when the names of Hosea's children are given back in this text, especially when it's pulled back out in Romans, we're in it. Paul understood Hosea's prophecy to be extending into the church with wide-reaching hands of grace that included you and me into the great renaming of Hosea's children. Now, before we come to a time of specific applications of this text, um, we need to see what happens in Hosea chapter 3 because it's heartbreaking and it is uh, beautiful. In, chap- in this chapter, Hosea left him, uh, Hosea's wife, Gomer, she left him to go back to her previous lovers. So she left him again, and God instructed him to go and pay her lovers to purchase her back for himself. God is telling his people here in this, in this analogy, in this picture. It's not even an analogy. This stuff happened. This is real. He's telling his people, you can run as far and as fast as you can from me. You can run as far and as fast as you can from me into all the arms that are not mine. And although I will head you in with judgment so you can realize your failings, I will redeem you and I will bring you home. It's terribly sad, but the children of Israel never repented of their sin. And they were carried away in judgment to Assyria. However, a few hundred years later, God himself would come and pay the price for his people. Jesus, the the second person of the Trinity, would take on flesh and he would live that perfect life that you and I couldn't live and he would die the death that you and I surely deserve. And with his resurrection, he would confirm that he had conquered over sin and death and that all who run to him will find forgiveness and lose all of their filthy chains that hold them down and keep them under the wrath of God. There's freedom to be found in Christ. As Paul's testimony in Romans 9 reminds us, this promise is not only for Jews living thousands of years ago in Samaria. This promise from God extends to you today. Um, Applications. I have have four applications for the believer and then one uh, for the unbeliever. So let's let's start here. Number one, for the believer, if you're taking notes, if if you get the pen and the paper, I see a couple of you. There's like two of you. If you're taking notes, number one, remember your position with God rightly. Remember your position with God rightly. We had this this morning with our confession. It was so wonderful. I needed that. Thank you, Sam. Remember your position with God rightly. I am so weary of personally experiencing and then also hearing from my brothers and sisters here in this room that you uh, feel that God is on edge with you. 
that we are perhaps in the people of Israel's shoes, that God is going to at some point get so fed up with us that he's going to say, you know what, you come and get me when you're serious and you're ready to make this thing work. We are not in Israel's shoes. We have better shoes. We have Jesus. If you are in Christ, your sins have been nailed to the cross in Colossians 2. We still have our flesh to battle with and our sin to kill, but make sure you understand your sin in light of Christ's work. Even though Jesus' disciples showed that they were capable of leaving and forsaking him, his last words to them in Matthew's gospel is that, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you are in Christ, you are drowning in the righteousness that he's wrapped you in with no possibility of ever reaching the surface where his grace for you does not exist. Point number two, continue to strive for purity in this time of your betrothal to Jesus. Continue to strive for purity in your betrothal to Jesus. Although we have been purchased by the blood and sealed with the Spirit, if you are in Christ, we must still put our sin to death while we live here and while we're taking in God's air. We must make sure that when what we call God, both formally and then also practically, is the Trinitarian God of the Bible, we have to make sure we're worshiping him in spirit and truth. In the words of, of Keith Whitley, don't close your eyes when you're, when you're battling against sin, but keep them open and keep them on Jesus. Treasure him and treasure righteousness because it brings you into deeper and deeper communion with him. Point number three, uh, remember that God paid for you while you were a whore. This is, this is such vivid imagery, this graphic imagery that Hosea helps us to understand that God did not simply put the finishing touch on your goodness. He didn't just come and, and dust you up a little bit, give you a touch up, but he bought you at the brothel that you called home. Many of us have memorized verses like Romans 5, 8, where, where Paul writes, God shows his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How the, however, this, this story that Hosea presents gives that some gospel teeth that sinks into us deeply. That verse will stick with us when we hear it through the story of Hosea. Point number four, look forward to the day when you remember your idols no more. Uh, if you are a believer and you know the one true God, however, you, you know your idols too. You know the things that you fight against, your sins. You actively fight against them. What, whether it be internet pornography, and I know it is for many of you because you've told me. Whether it be pornography, which snares so many of us in our worship of self when we chase after images to give us uh, the desires that only Christ can fulfill or whether it be pride that has caused you to declare yourself as Lord of your life, forgetting what Christ has done for you and running over everybody in your wake. Or whether it be a, a despair because of a physical or emotional pain that does not stop all day or all night. Nobody else sees it or feels it but you, and you just want it to be gone. One day, he will remove them, and you will remember them no more. This is what Hosea shows us. This is, this is the word of the Lord out of Hosea. One day, you will remember your idols by name no more. 
or the things that have confronted you and hurt you. Look forward to the day when you will no longer need faith to trust in the God who is right in front of you. Look forward to the day when he heals us of our unfaithfulness. Now, for the unbeliever, I have one application. One application for you is turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. The promises in this text are for those who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, who trust in his, his righteousness as their own. These promises could be for you if you would uh, repent of your sin and fall after Christ. This, sin, this world is broken, we know. People are hurting, we're aware. And people are dying, we, we, we know. It's a broken and messy world out there, but the gospel shows us that the God who created it all did not leave it to rot. He has entered into the sinful mess that we created it, we created, and he has redeemed us. Would you trust in Jesus today? Every week we end our services by celebrating communion. And if you are a believer, I would invite you to come and take as a remembrance of Christ's work to purchase and make us. Uh, make us his, but also in anticipation of Christ's return. We look, we look backwards and we look forward at this table. And the bread is to remember his flesh broken for you and the, and the wine to, to remember his blood poured out for us. If you're not a believer, I would, I would ask that you uh, would remain in your seat because this would be an empty ritual for you. This is just high V bread and, and, and probably Welch's grape juice. Don't take part in empty rituals. Take part in Jesus. Take Jesus today. And if you have any other questions, ask anybody else that comes up and takes from this table because they'll tell you about their Jesus. Emmaus, I love you. Come and take. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.